all of you early arrivers, you guys know what that clean star usually stands for? It's a wild card, so it means any number. You can click in with any number.
about two-thirds to one-third. And before telling you more about what we came up with in class, um, just wanted to make sure you remember. So I will be in my office hours right after class today. It would be great to see you here for an hour. Wednesday, my office hours are delayed, so 3 to 5.30. After Wednesday, classes are over, so we're all going on an appointment only office hour basement, basement, basis, 
Wednesday is your last day to participate in extra credit. That's the last day of classes. And Wednesday, I hope you will toss a pencil or two into your book bag before coming to class, because we're doing course and teacher evaluations on the lecture. And U of A is still in 1972 <coughs> with respect to course and teacher evaluation technology. Yeah? Isn't the TC for this class online? I have it in paper. Oh. Yeah, so the question was, isn't it online? Perhaps it should be. Because I think I did two. <coughs> Interesting. I, I have a big old stack of paper forms in my office, so I'm bringing them on Wednesday. I can also use a little black paper. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, I don't know if anybody but me went to the fair. I did. Yeah? I like to try to go on the first weekend of the fair, but I usually can't make wait make it till the last weekend of the fair. And the bad news about last weekend of the fair is that all the horse shows are mostly done, right? Um, there were barrel racers, though, yeah, on Saturday. Yeah? Oh, and yay, congratulations, Brittany. She won the barrel race up there. Um, you know, there are lots of goats. Always lots of goats. On the last weekend, most of the sheep have gone home. The cows are there, um, but there's always goats, and you can pet them. And there was a llama, and you could pet it. They all get auctioned off in the second weekend, so yeah. a lot of them stay. But there is a livestock auction that happens on the last weekend. It's true. So anyway, this is a fair goat. She's a she's a nanny goat who was very friendly, and she says hello, students. She does a she does a very crazy face. You handed in your field report. Yay! All that's left are these quizzy exam things, some participation points. I am once again totally pleased with this class in how stress-free, for us anyway, the field report submission process went. So thank you. All of you who did your due diligence, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's awesome. And I'm looking through field reports and seeing what you've come up with and being delighted by them. Um, your section instructors are grading them. They are probably also delighted, but it's mixed with the, the office of how to grade something, which makes it less delightful. I get to read them more freely. Uh, do you guys have any questions about the schedule? Of course you know. You're the good students who come to class every day. Wayne? <laughs> When does the exam actually open? I'm aiming for 8 a.m. on Thursday, dead day, May 3rd. Yes? There is no possibility of having it open on Wednesday, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I won't have it done. So for us to collect, we actually write the questions based on the lecture notes as they occurred, which means that for, like, I don't know, I want to make sure we've actually covered the material that we're testing you on, right? So we won't have all the questions written till Wednesday night. That means I get to spend Wednesday night trying to proofread them, put them together, and make sure everything works properly before 8 a.m. on Thursday. That's really the earliest we can get it open. Go ahead, go there. So it'll be just like the other exams in that we can save our answers and go back it is just like the first exam, same length, same type of questions, same procedure. You can open it up multiple times, save your answers. You only get one submit. 
The majority of the questions, 90% of the points or so, are from lecture. There's a little 10% section that comes from your readings post-midterm. It is not officially cumulative. It is only cumulative insofar as your knowledge is. Right, so I should be able to say low back merger to you. And you should know that that calls on information you actually learned way at the start of the semester on vowel articulation. But we used it again when we were talking about dialectal variation. Right. Okay, excellent. As a review, this is some of the ground we covered last time. I played you a little snippet from Guild Above talking about the northern city shift. So I would expect that that's something I could ask you an exam question or two about. Um, and then we looked at particular, mostly phonological properties of people's speech and tried to see whether there was some evidence of an Arizona variety in the room. This was from the example of the word language, whether you have language, language, language. That high, higher, it's the tense front mid-vowel A, is thought to be a property of Arizona and Utah. And that's one where you guys in class absolutely had it at a rate much higher than the non-Arizona. So I think that was a good marker for us. What was the target word for this guy? Milk versus milk, okay. no difference between Arizonans and non-Arizonans. What was the target word for this guy? Dude, dude. Stronger actually in the non-Arizonans. I wonder how many of you are from California. California's, California's are fronting their ooze. We didn't have hardly anybody who would admit to an intrusive R in a word like worsh. It's made me sad. Um, a couple of intrusive L's in a word like both, but more so in the non-Arizonans than in the Arizonans. So, so far, this is really our only Arizona-type observation. Keith and then Keith. Wayne and Lincoln. What was that intrusive word for the northern section? So the northern city shift, that was Bill above. That was, we played you a little snippet of linguist Bill LaBeouf talking about the shift in vowels. Well, yeah, he had bosses and buses. Bosses and buses. Right, remember bosses and buses were bosses. What was the other word? Black. We all live on the same black. Black for block. Go ahead. For the R, I noticed that the math class afterwards. I'd say integer. Okay. Uh -huh. Cassandra has intrusive R and integer, integer, integer. You might find it popping up lexically specifically. That's a very interesting. Um, but it's not yet consistent, maybe, in, in your speech. And maybe I chose the wrong children. I also asked you for, for some specific words. And I've highlighted in red the words that were most common selections for our Arizonans. Um, in these cases, the Arizona selection was also the selection that everybody made. And I think it is probably the case that today soda is the most widespread generic soft drink term. It doesn't really describe a regional variety anymore. Pop 
is regionalized and Cope is highly regionalized to the southeast. Um, Creek was how everybody selected of the options that I gave you. There was only one person willing to admit to a Crick. This is a Western pronunciation. Um, it's also found in some northeast cities. Nobody from Arizona wanted Brook. Brook is a term that's more common in the northeast. We had some arroyos, which is a, a term you would expect in the southwest because of the close connection to uh, Spanish. Here I think we have an example of a good Arizona word, wash for a dryer for bed. That is, that's a term that people in the American Southwest are familiar with, will use often, and people in other areas of the country might not have a word for that at all, right? They might not realize that's a thing that you should name. So the environment where we live affects the kinds of words that we have to use, right? Okay, I wanted to rematch this guy, so I'm going to close the start of class poll. And this time I'm not separating Arizonans from non-Arizonans because there are too many good options. If you have a generic word for all these kinds of things, right, but not the ones that are like shiny brown leather and wear them with tuxedos, or not the ones that have pointy heels, you know, this kind. Let me know what your preferred generic term for these guys is. And hopefully I've done a better job at covering the, the likely options. I did put other, yes, this time. So for those of you who were mad because I have forced choice of you, you have a category. Okay, and please go ahead and vote in the next Three, two, one, 88. Huh. Here's us. Here's a recent national poll um, of American English speakers all across the country. Sneakers. The most commonly identified generic term for those shoes. Let's see, where was sneakers? Ooh. Only 16% of us selected that. Um, tennis shoes was a close second nationally, and that's what you guys have overwhelmingly picked. What was six? Let's see. Oh, just shoes. Just shoes, Richard. Tennis shoes have the We used to call Tennies. Yeah, yeah. There are other possibilities. These are the ones that showed up with any kind of regularity in the national poll. And what I want you to note is that we've even gone down to the 0.2 of a percent national poll respondents um, with the word trainers. If we had done this poll in Great Britain, we would have gotten a lot more people calling them trainers. Runners, only 0.2 of a percent. Ah. In the national poll, however, Arizona had speakers giving each of these answers as correct. So all of these generic terms 
are, are uh, preferred by at least some Arizonans in roughly the percentages given there on the right. So uh, trainers was there, but not by very many. Gym shoes, that kind of surprises me. That's one I would have thought would have been more common. Ah. Oh my word, what just happened? I moved things hither and thither. There we go. All right. Now, let me ask you this. If you speak Espanol, you know that Spanish in Arizona sounds different than Spanish in other places, correct? Yes. Si, my Espanol is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So we just looked at dialectal variation in English, English spoken in Arizona, and there are certainly Arizona varieties of English. There are going to be Arizona varieties of Spanish. Spanish also a local language here in Arizona? Absolutely it is, right? It's been here longer than English has. Um, and there are heritage varieties of Spanish that have never been in Mexico. Well. They were in Mexico when this part of the world was called Mexico. But they, they've never been, they didn't come from anywhere else, right? They've grown up here. What I want you to do now, so lots of varieties of Spanish and lots of other heritage languages of Arizona. So now I'm going to open up a poll. And I'm just going to ask you to choose, use the numbers on your keypad to tell me how many local languages, that is, languages that are not English, not Spanish, local indigenous languages are in Arizona. So these would be languages that precede Spanish. Okay, so if you think there was one, give me a one. If you think there was two, give me a two. If you think there were nine, give me a nine. If you think there were ten or more, give me a zero. Is this grammatical Spanish? Una variedad de Arizona de los ungulados, ungulados, ungulates. Not a very frequent word. You guys know what an ungulate is? Any hoofed animal. Yeah, so an elk. Is is um. Words for these guys are interesting in indigenous languages because. There's, so there's these animals, if you know what an elk looks like, and you know what a deer looks like, similar, yeah, different varieties of deer, but you can tell the difference between an elk and a deer, right? Yeah. Now think about what a moose looks like. You can tell the difference between a moose and an elk, but there are lots of languages depending on where they were and how many of those critters were in their area um, that have one word to cover either two of the three or three of the three of those. Uh, yeah, and, and the study of, in particular, the different differentiation between elk and moose is something that historical and comparative linguists actually look at a lot for the languages of the Northwest um, and through the languages of Siberia. So elk is an interesting linguistic animal. Go ahead, Cassandra. In French, moose, I think 
Right, right, right. So there's complex borrowing relationships that go back and forth for these things. Okay, let's see what you came up with. How many do you think? Oh, all right. Well, I'm going to show you, and then you'll find out whether you were right. The 4% of you who answered one are, are incorrect. I'll give you that much. Here is our lovely state in outline. These are language families. Now, we haven't talked together about what it means to be a language family, but let me give you a flavor for this. So related languages, languages in the same family, are languages that we think at some point in the past used to be the same language. And then people moved out and, and migrated, and they differentiated. English and Spanish are in the same language family as each other. The family is called Indo-European. Indo-European also includes Russian. Indo-European also includes Sanskrit. It also includes Irish. It also includes Greek. So think about language family. That's a serious amount of diversity inside of one language family. Each of these is a language family that has at least one member that's indigenous to the state of Arizona. So we have a language family called Uto-Aztecan. Uto. So Uto describes the northern extent of this language family. Can you think of a state name? Right, Utah. So to Utah in the north, Aztecan. Where are the Aztecs? Mexico. Right, Mexico. And that's the southern group. So this is a language, the Aztecan language family goes from central Mexico up to what is now Utah and the Great Basin in the US. It's a huge language family. <coughs> Athabascan, the second language group. I'm going to give you names of specific languages that fit in these families. Athabascan um, is named after the, a lake, Lake Athabasca, in Canada. Um, the Athabascan language family is found in the far Pacific Northwest and the west of Canada. Um, then there's a whole bunch of space with no Athabascan speakers, and then there are these Athabascan languages in the American Southwest, Arizona and New Mexico. There's a third population of Athabascan languages in coastal California. So what it looks like is there was a big Athabascan language family centered around northern Canada, northwestern Canada, and there were two migrations, one to the American Southwest. The humans, Yuma, humans, um, Kiowa Tanoan, uh, the Kiowa Tanoan group is found in Arizona, in eastern Arizona, and New Mexico in a lot of the Pueblo communities. And then we have a language in Arizona that is not related to any other known human languages, because so it's called a linguistic isolate. Let me put these guys on the map, and we'll see how many are names that are at least familiar to you. Come on. Southern Paiute, yeah, you've heard of Paiute, 
Hopi. You've probably heard it called Pima. Should be called Akimel O'odham. And you've certainly heard of Tana O'odham. What part of, so both of those names have a word in them that means people. Which word means people? O'odham, correct. Akimel means river. Donon means desert. Yaki, you've heard of the Yaki's, yeah? So these are all related languages to each other. Chemawavy is actually a dialect of southern Paiute that found itself in the Colorado River Indian Tribes Reservation years ago. And Chemawavy is down to one living speaker. And he's awesome. He um, happily likes working with linguists. So he's become very famous in, in the linguistic literature. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six languages from the first language family. Now we have our Athabascan languages. You might not realize that Navajo and Apache linguistically are very, very closely related. So Navajos can mostly understand Apache. Apaches can mostly understand Navajo linguistically. Culturally, these groups are quite different. Don't confuse them, because culturally and historically, they're quite distinct. There are a whole bunch of additional Apache varieties that are spoken all the way east to Oklahoma. The western Apaches are in northeastern Arizona. Um, that's the most vibrant Apache-speaking community remaining. There are still young people learning western Apache in the home. There are about 100,000 speakers of Navajo. In Arizona, it happens to be the third most commonly spoken language in the state, but you know that. Um, these are the Athabascan languages of Arizona. In the human family, Hualapai, Havasupai, Yavapai, these are names you've heard of? They're like place names. They're used in county names and stuff like that, right? Mojave. Human, a language of the human family, Kokopa, Maricopa. Just a few remaining speakers of Maricopa, some of which may be beginning a research project with U of A linguists in the next year to begin documenting Maricopa. It's not much is known about it. Um, Certainly, these these groups that are in the blue, there's lots of robust evidence that they've been in this area for many thousands of years. It's harder to date the uh, appearance of the Athabascan speakers in this area. There's, they still have some linguistic ties to the north. Um, but as long as we know there are people, we've not found evidence of a language group older in the area than human and Udo-Aztecan. Ah, Kechan. Our Kiowa Tanoan language. Kiowa, there are speakers of this language on Hopi first, I think it's first Pueblo. They're a refugee population. They've been there since the 1600s, though. Um, interesting fact about the Arizona Tewa. They uh, have a belief, many, many 
who had low cultures have a belief that it's improper for somebody who's not a member of the community to speak the language. So Tewa speakers on, on the Hopi Pueblo are almost all fluent in Hopi as well as Tewa, as well as usually Spanish and English. But there is no recorded incidence of a Hopi person who speaks Tewa. So these people have lived together since the 1600s. The Tewa have become bilingual, the Hopi not so much, and that's that's the wishes of the table. Now our isolate Zuni, which we claim in Arizona because there are Zuni speakers living in Arizona, even though Zuni Pueblo is technically in New Mexico. And Zuni is a language that is, as far as linguists can tell, completely unrelated to any other human language. So let's see, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's more than ten. Those of you who guessed more than ten, rock on. Um, if you didn't know that, it's one of the things about Arizona that I hope you come to love. That this is linguistic diversity. This is way more diverse than Europe, you guys. How many language families spoken today in Europe? There's three, of which one, Indo-European, is overwhelmingly represented. Uh, there's a language group called Finno-Ugric, Finnish, and Turkish. And then there's an isolate called Basque. That's all you got in terms of language families in Europe. Look at this. Most of these languages have speakers. Um, some of them, small communities of speakers. Others, like Navajo, large communities of speakers. But all of them are currently endangered. Because if you look at generational transmission, if you're a young person entering school, you're overwhelmingly unlikely to speak anything other than English or maybe Spanish in Arizona. Um, if you're an older person, if you're my age or older, particularly if you're, if you're in your 60s or older, and you're a member of one of these communities, you're likely to speak the heritage language. So there's been a shift that's happened very, very rapidly. Uh, that that uh, seems like it might be disastrous, except that people in these communities are beginning to turn that around. Yeah, I think that's good. So these are the ones that pre-exist Spanish, uh, pre-exist, is that the right word? They were here before Spanish, here before English. Um, there was this weird arbitrary drawing of borders, international borders, state borders, <laughs> reservation borders. You guys know that that all happened on top of people. Right, so particularly the autumn community See how it has a long international border? That's because Atam is in Sonora, too. It just always has been. And you have families for whom, you know, grandma's over here, and grandkids are down here, or for whom the hospital's here, and the person is here. Uh, and there is tremendous difficulty sort of negotiating the issues of the international border, especially in a world of ever-increasing border security concerns. 
and keeping people able to do things like go to the grocery store, go to the hospital, see their family members. Go ahead. Is there a shift now, starting a shift between the two languages? Like the same oh, that's a good question. We have a new student arriving next year, a new graduate student, who is a Sonora Autumn speaker. There is, if there are shifts, they are subtle, but we might be able to detect them. Um, so overlay Spanish on all of this, and then overlay English. We have inf influence of Indo-European. But this is, a, this is a super diverse place. Right? You should be happy about that, because there aren't that many places left in the US where this is true. There's Arizona. There's Oklahoma. There's Alaska. California, all of you Californians out there, used to be pre-contact California might have been the most linguistically diverse place on earth in the history of humanity. Coastal California. There is not a single indigenous language in coastal California that's being learned by children today. Californians go home. Talk about supporting local languages. It's a huge, huge, horrible loss to the intellectual history of humans when a language goes out. Um, think of all the thousands of years people have lived in an environment, what they know about plants and animals, about how to survive. And it just goes poof. Horrible. Ah, but these are, what would you call these guys? <laughs> so I heard burro, donkeys, and then I heard a word that might also be on another usage, taboo. <laughs> These are from the BLM tents at the fair. They were having adoptions, wild horse and burro adoptions. I so wanted to bring a burro home. They're so cute. So what do we learn about language variety? Well, we learn that there's a variation all around us. That Local varieties, you know, if we say there's Arizona English, well, what we're really saying is that there's more representation of a certain feature in Arizona than there probably is outside of Arizona, but there's always tremendous variability. And varieties change over time. Changes occur in the phonology, in the word building, in the sentence building. Changes happen throughout all the domains of the grammar. And there's one place where we find in lots of languages a real engine of change. In, in the study of the things thou shalt not say. Weirdly, all human communities seem to have things you can't say. That is, the language lets you say them, but you're not supposed to say them. And these are the things I'm going to call to so, what I want you to do now is please don't say this word out loud. I want you to just think about what you know about bad words. Swears, curse words, things your mother would be mad at you if you said. Take the first one that came into your mind. Don't say it. I'm going to ask you to answer the following question about it. Are you ready? Do you have one in mind? Is there anybody in this room who doesn't know any curse words? Because we can help you out. <laughs> okay. 
Now I want you to tell me, for the curse word you have in your head, which of these semantic domains the word came from? Semantic domains, domains of meaning. So if it's a word that refers in some way to sexuality, body part, or activity, give me a one. If it's a word that refers to bodily function, part or activity, give me a two. If it's a word that comes from religion, give me a three. If it's a word that has to do with death, give me four. If it's a name for a category of people, like a stigmatized population or a racial or ethnic group, give me a five. And give me a six if it doesn't fit into any of those categories at all. Now, I'm, I'm listing these categories because I know them to be categories that are good for generating swears in American English. Some of them seem to be good for generating swears universally. So if you haven't clicked in, please do so in the next three, two, one. That is so typical. <laughs> Keep this in mind as we talk about taboo words, because there's, there's a set of theories that actually would predict this to be the case. Um, and if it is the case, would tell us something about the culture in which we're all operating as well. I will tell you that this is one of the, the semantic domains that does not translate very well cross-linguistically in terms of generating swears. So it's a specialization of English and a few other related languages, but not a typical generator of swears. Okay, as we're thinking about this, I know. <laughs> what's the dog doing? <laughs> we have lots of good scholarly reasons as linguists why you can't just ignore these words. Um, the cross-linguistic study of cursing and swearing shows us that swear words, taboo words, taboo constructions have special status in languages. So in terms of acquisition, there's, there's a, we know that little kids are great word learners. They're even better at picking up the taboo words, right? When you're a grown-up, so for most of us, the ability to learn new words really quickly and easily kind of diminishes over time and as, as adults we have to try harder. Except if we get to learn swears from another language, those still stick, right? In terms of our language in our brains, remember the different kinds of, of uh, you know, language and impairments, they are called a word that begins with A, aphasias, aphasias. What I didn't tell you is that there are types of aphasia in which a person's general linguistic ability is highly impaired, but the person can still curse like a sailor with perfect fluency. So there is something about taboo language that seems to be reinforced in our heads. We also know that there are certain uh, neurological disorders 
things like Tourette syndrome, in which speakers differentially produce, without consciously trying to, swear words and not other words. So, Richard. I bet that's because because when you swear, the effect of some part of your brain, so therefore, if there's not a brain injury, so it's clear that there's more stability in the brain to taboo vocabulary than to anything else. And it might be because there's an emotional charge there that helps disperse it. But, it, but nobody knows for sure. All we know is that swearing can be differentially affected by brain trauma and neurological disease. We can study the grammar of swearing and learn things that we otherwise wouldn't know about our language. So there's a really great series of papers on the rhythmic structure of English words and speakers' ability to insert the, the okay, so you know the word, the bad words that starts with F. And it's a monosyllable, but you make it progressive with the ing. And suddenly you can stick that guy in the middle of other words. So you can say things like fan. <laughs> or California, or absolutely. <laughs> now, everybody, think about this with, with, with me. I'm going to give you a word that you're probably not familiar with, but it's a good word in English. It's a place name, Apalachicola. Say it with me, Apalachicola. 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 Comfortable? Now think about where you can stick the... Okay, so let me ask you. Apalachicola. Yeah? Apalachicola. Apalachicola. Apalachico, right? Nobody taught you that, <laughs> right? But English speakers agree. There is a particular rhythmic position where that guy can go in English. And it tells us something about the sound structure of English words that there's actually precious little other evidence for. So it's a really, really important phenomenon. Um, similar things, you know how you can, I'm going to use the, Refer to the F word again, this time in its single monosyllabic form. You know how you can say what the, who the, when the, where the. It's a little weird to say which the. <laughs> so this has changed actually in American English over time. You can track it on Google. Um, in my day, when I was a young person doing my graduate work here, nobody could say which stuff. It was nowhere. It's growing. Since that time, we're becoming more facile with our F-bombs. And we, there are speakers now who can start using it in this other construction. But it's an interesting question, why? Why does it fit more naturally in some places than the other? 
And we want to know, if we're an anthropologist, an anthropological linguist, we want to learn something about a culture by looking at patterns of swearing. It's part of the pragmatics of our language. And there is no doubt about it that the study of swearing gives you a picture of a culture that you can't get any other way. So, why do I need a mini What are they? So these are the things that you're not allowed to say, but most of us say them anyway. Right? There are some of you who are virtuous and will say, I can curse a blue streak. I can totally keep up with you. I choose not to do it because of my, the pragmatics of my role here at the University of Arizona. But we're all good at these things, right? And the particular kind of language taboo that I think it's easiest to focus on in American English is the word level taboo, words that we can't say. The types of words that become taboo are really variable cross-culturally. Before we explore the variability more further, more further? That doesn't make any sense at all. I want to do an experiment. <coughs> now, I'm going to ask you to do a thing, except I don't actually want you to do the thing. So this is completely hypothetical. I don't want anybody to leave this classroom thinking that I actually want you to do this. Okay? I don't. But imagine a world in which you had an evil professor who wanted you to do the following experiment. Imagine there is somebody in the world who you love dearly. I don't know who that is, but you know who that is. Some human person who is just closer to your heart than anybody else. Imagine someone were to ask you to, on the next clear, full moon night, at midnight, stroke of midnight, full moon, find a place where you could be absolutely certain that no other human being could hear you. And then, think of that person in your head, and in a loud, clear voice, say three times, I hope that person's name dies a horrible death tomorrow. Nobody can hear you. You don't mean it. Now let me ask you to vote. See why I don't want you to do it? If you would be perfectly comfortable doing that, perfectly comfortable, it wouldn't bother you a bit, give me a one. If you might do it if somebody, I don't know, gave you money or really incentivized it somehow, or you want to do it to prove a point that really secretly you feel worried, give me a two. And if you just would never do that, give me a three. Okay, so remember, the key things are you can be certain nobody else can hear you. You don't mean it. Loud, clear voice. Mm. Let's see what you say. See? Me too. So the next thing to think about is why the heck not? Yeah. So you would assume that anybody 
who's, who knows your heart would know you didn't mean it. Right? But for some reason, speakers in all speech communities, arguably, believe that there's at some level a connection with what you say and what between what you say and what happens. That is, the idea of saying something like that, even if you don't mean it, is somehow intrinsically upsetting, intrinsically bad. I've had lots of students say to me, well, but, okay, I don't think that saying it would have anything to do with things happening, but then what if something terrible happened the next day? Right, you, like, wonder. We have a connection between what we say and what happens in the world that I think is an intrinsic, an intrinsic part of understanding language. So in sports, in theater, there's lots of things you're not supposed to say bad luck, right? And when, when other people have those rituals, we tend to call them superstitions. But I would argue that most people feel superstitions, superstitions connected to language because we know in our social lives how powerful language actually is to affect the world. Right? We know that it affects other people. We know that it affects our social connections really powerfully. And so it's hard for us to differentiate that from other kinds of powerful language. And I think that word taboos are an example of how we as humans develop that relationship between words and things. So, so, you can look at the word taboos in a particular speech community and learn something about what that community is most afraid of. One of the most common semantic domains cross-linguistically for word taboos is the domain of death. This makes perfect sense, right? You can't be a human being and not have some fears associated with death. Now, in lots of languages, this is a very powerful generator of word taboos, and in particular, taboos against saying the name of a person who has died. So, for example, in Ute, one doesn't say the name of a person who's died because the story is will wake that person up. In Dine Bazaar, I'm told that same sort of, of taboo. Do you guys have a taboo against saying the name of someone who's died? I don't think I have that, but I think I have a taboo against saying something critical, critical about someone who's died. Yeah. Right? So there's a really similar Okay. Oh. I just want to curse at you one time in Proto-Germanic. So English is uh, used to be German. I'm going to curse at you. Are you ready? Ursa. Indeed. Next time we meet, we'll talk about why it might have been bad to say Ursa to you a thousand years ago. Why I say bear to you today.